Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. Lockdown has given us a lot of miserable things. Endless Zoom meetings and ukulele-driven adverts about being together alone among them. But it's been very, very good for transport and specifically for cycling. And given that research in the British Medical Journal in 2017 showed that adults who cycle to work have lower long-term risk of dying of cancer or cardiovascular disease, that's probably a good thing for all of us. Adam Tranter is the first ever cycling mayor of Coventry, a lifelong cyclist who runs a communications agency dedicated to getting more people on their bikes. There are over 100 cycling mayors around the world now, and Adam's goal is to make Coventry a little bit more like Amsterdam. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the bunker. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, our pleasure. Um, so just to frame things up for the, uh, the listeners, what does your role as a cycling mayor actually entail and what powers do you have? Do you have a massive gold chain with a bicycle on it and some fur robes <laughs> or just Patagonia and Lycra? Yes. Um, so um, bicycle mayors are are, um, are independent of, of the local council. So they're really, uh, I guess, local advocates that work with stakeholders in the community to try and drive change for better cities for, for cycling and active travel. And they actually come from the, the Netherlands, like most of these progressive things do. And the organization that I represent, which is an organization called Bikes, that's B-Y-C-S, they looked at another organization in Amsterdam that was doing the same thing for the nighttime economy. They were called nightmares they needed a better name in english but um that's what they were that's what they were called and they really worked with all their local stakeholders to kind of fight for the rights of the nighttime economy and and has actually become quite a popular thing around the world and bicycle mayors are effectively the cycling version of those working with those stakeholders to try and get change i don't have a cold chain unfortunately uh, and uh, you know everything i do is built on relationships so i may uh, I would say a, an advisor and um, supporter of the local council there, um, but I also, you know, hold them to account when they need to do more, um, and that's I think appreciated as well. And in terms of the location, I mean, I know you have a personal link to Coventry, but what was the the thinking between having that as the location for the first cycling mayor? Was it because it was a typical city in terms of the challenges you were facing or was it because there were factors that made it a particularly hard nut to crack so kind of if it could work there it could work anywhere yeah so a, a mixture of both I, I'm from Coventry I was born and bred in the city um, not a lot of people know this but Coventry practically invented the modern bicycle so been over 400 bicycle manufacturers in, in in Coventry in around 100 years. Almost every car manufacturer you see now has their roots originally in making bicycles. And in fact, the first looked, first cars pretty much looked like bicycles with motors on. Coventry did all that. So it's, a, you know, in all intents and purposes, it's a cycling city, um, but it's also a city that has totally be, become overrun with, with the private motor car. You know, it has a, a ring road which a lot of cities that were um, rebuilt after the war do. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can drive everywhere pretty much unhindered. 
Uh, and guess what? People every people drive everywhere unhindered because we make it easy enough to, to do so. So it is a really tough nut to crack. And my view is, you know, it's personal in one in one respect, but also in another. If you can do get change in Coventry, it could be a blueprint for lots of other similar cities around the country. And hopefully that will inspire more people to become bicycle mayors. And as, uh, as we said in the intro, there's now, I think, around 150 mayors like yourself scattered around the world. Are you are you networking at all? Is there a kind of transnational operation between you guys? Yes. When I first started uh, early this year, we we had a kind of summit uh, pre-COVID in, in Amsterdam and we shared ideas and, and, and visions. And the thing that's pretty amazing is just how different each bicycle mayor and and therefore also their city is you know different ideas totally different challenges you know the bicycle mayor in Amsterdam the the first one um is actually funded and supported by the 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 city government there they have a, a reverse problem in they their bike lanes aren't wide enough they're too busy they have bike lane traffic jams so they need to fight for that um whereas uh in Coventry we need to get our first bike lanes uh effectively up and running there's a huge amount of uh wealth and variety of 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 experience and ideas um you know in places like india and in uh, there's a bicycle mayor in new mexico uh, it's just such a such a uh, well such a vast and different world and it's really important to share those ideas and that's what we do so we're all on a kind of massive slack channel we all share ideas we all um kind of talk about it and there's actually a new bicycle mayor just started in Birmingham, just neighbouring to Coventry. So um, having a, a chat with him, um, and uh, that means we can show ideas on a real local level as well, which is which is nice. Who do you think um, we should be learning from? We always tend to sort of think of Amsterdam as being kind of the acme of kind of, you know, safe bicycling, although Amsterdam historically was a very car-dominated city mm. that transformed radically. Um, apart from Amsterdam, is there anyone else who's really leading the way and showing sort of best practice? I would look to Paris because Paris is doing incredible things in an incredibly short space of time. If you, you know, anyone who's been to Paris in the last decade will know that it is a city choked by congestion. Um, and their elected mayor, Anne Hidalgo, basically has been re-elected on a mandate of, I'm going to remove 60,000 parking spaces in the city centre, and I'm going to create a bike lane on every street. And she got re-elected, and that's exactly what she's doing. So, if you look at videos and films or you visit Paris now, you will start to see parts of the city just totally transformed by people on bikes. And they're all wearing normal clothes, doing normal things, just getting about their their day um, on, on two wheels. And those people were previously, you know, using the, the metro pre-pandemic, which has its own issues, or they were, you know, they were driving or they were being driven in taxis. Uh, and, and we've, you know, seen, I think that's been really important. Yes, people have, People would say about the Netherlands or uh, Copenhagen and Denmark, and they're all really uh, important examples. And it's really important that we know that in the 1960s and 70s, those cities looked like our cities do now. So it's not always been like that. But if you see a city like Paris, which is transformed in less than a year for quite modest budget, really shows what po- what's possible and that if you build it, people will come. The Paris example is interesting because Hildago seems to have gone very, very hard on selling that as a, a positive. And, you know, so it was a big part of her you know, election campaign and her sort of promise to voters that they're going to clean the city up. And yet 
when we talk in this country about making towns and cities less car focused, the debate is often made in terms of people losing something or mm. their freedoms being restricted. How do you think we can reframe that argument? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. We do need to reframe that argument. And I would say that it's not plain sailing in in Paris either. My um my brother and sister-in-law live in central Paris and, you know, they they definitely did not vote for Anne Hidalgo and, and you know, think it's all crazy. And there are, you know, I think you have those issues locally. And But the quality of the, the engagement is what's really important there. And, yeah, as you say, what you give rather than what you take away. So I've been talking to local councils about how you can make sure that schemes are to the benefit of both pedestrians and people on bikes, because let's face it, everybody at one point or another is a pedestrian. So we can see the the value that it would create to our to our communities. And actually just taking a, a leaf out of the playbook of kind of the private sector and marketing and and you know what are these people getting? So parklets is one. So I don't know if you've ever seen pocket parks there being created in the space of a car parking space. Well, why don't you put those in your town centre? Why don't you put those in your city centre so people can go out, sit outside businesses, and those businesses can continue to trade during hard times, uh, and people can have a better relationship with their local area and have a better civic pride. And actually, when they walk down the street, they go, oh, there's all this greenery and there's all these lovely benches to sit on. Isn't that nice? Uh, and it's like, yes, that's made possible because we closed the road at the end and we repurposed some of the spaces we use for car storage for real people doing things, people like you, not just what you might think it's for which uh, you know largely middle-aged men wearing lycra um you know riding fast into their into their day jobs uh, in the center of london and that's what people in this country think cyclists are and actually we need to reframe it and say this is this stuff is for everybody wouldn't you like to be able to cycle to school with your child or wouldn't you like to be able to go and continue to support your local restaurateur during these difficult times where they can only serve so many people because of covid um, and that's the kind of things that we need to be talking about as what people are getting rather than what they're they're losing. That kind of joined up thinking about, you know, the way we use our streets dictates the way that our cities look. Um, it's something you go into very strongly in your own podcast, uh, Streets Ahead, which I would recommend to listeners. Something I've picked up from listening to that, which I didn't really realise, and I don't think most people do, is just the sheer amount of damage that car-focused cities are doing to us. You know, there's couple of facts I've pulled out from recent episodes is, you know, one in 18 people in Coventry die from pollution-related illnesses. 98% of monitored roads in the city have um, emissions that are above World Health Organization guidelines. We've also seen a lot in the last uh, six months about the links between respiratory illnesses and the severity of how people are getting COVID. Why do you think there's not been more uproar about this? I mean, has the car industry just been very, very good at getting us to look the other way and a sort of sleight of hand because these numbers are absolutely staggering i think it's a a bit of both of all of those things um the car industry is very important it's very important to coventry you know i think some two percent of people in the west midlands are employed by the car industry and and directly and then there's you know the indirect economy as well um so that's that's part of it i think we've designed our cities to behave in a certain way and we shouldn't be surprised that everyone behaves in that way We've seen during COVID that if you, during lockdown especially, if you change the parameters quite drastically, i.e. you take road traffic back to 1950s levels, 
then all of a sudden people who you would not normally see on the roads. And it's not just because they're bored and they've got nothing else to do. They, for the first time, felt they could go about their daily business and go and do stuff as a family safely for the for the first time. So I think it shows that when you build cities though in, in a certain era, those cities have not necessarily aged well. It's very hard because we, all of us, pretty much drive cars, myself included. You know, I try not to use my car wherever possible and I don't use it for short journeys but I have a car on the drive and I am therefore a car driver so if you you create an environment where that is seen as a totally normal thing to do you find it very hard to think about the consequences that might have and uh, we're very we take a very dim view of if someone was to pour oil into a river um, but we we don't take such a dim view if someone was to take that those same chemicals and put them into the air outside a school um, and I think part of that is because we can't see it uh, and then part of that is we've just, you know, we've totally normalized it. I mean, that all seems very, uh, very obvious and reasonable. Although anyone who spends time on local community Facebook groups will know that mm-hmm. any discussions around cycling and cyclists seem to quickly bring out a level of hostility that seems completely disproportionate to what is as you say, a pretty benign activity. Um, do you think there's a, a sort of, is there an emotional reason why this reaction is so common? And do cyclists shoulder any responsibility for it? I think there's, there's a, well, there's several things there. Um, one is there's been research based on this. And one of the points it centers around is that on the roads, rightly or wrongly, or whether we follow them or not, we, there's a, there's a rule of law uh, and there's a, uh, a kind of equilibrium that's largely capped where people sometimes you know let each other out you don't go up on the outside and cut in at the very last minute when two lanes go into one mm. uh, etc we do this because a the system relies on it because uh, of congestion but b if we didn't we'd all kill each other because we're driving massive lumps of metal uh, and that would be a problem and when you put people on bicycles you know, from a physics point of view, they don't pose anywhere near the same amount of risk. Car drivers kill five people every day on average uh, in this country, whereas pedestrians die about once every two years as a result of a cyclist. Um, so we just, but we treat them with the same with the same guys. We have to, you know, have to follow the same rules. They have to follow the same laws. And I can understand that when it comes to things like red lights. But when you're sat in a massive metal box and some guy comes up and cuts in front of you 15 cars up the road he's ultimately got an edge on you uh, and that it's hard not to feel frustrated so there's been some work done on that about how people just from a kind of you know basic human need find that um frustrating i think cyclists or people on bikes are the one of the very few groups of people that can still be referred to as a kind of you know there's still fair game to to have a bit of fun at i'm not by any means putting that on the same level as you know genuine discrimination you know based on uh gender or race or anything like that but ultimately you know veganism for example take veganism five years ago uh, peter walker from the guardian was telling me this and i thought it was fascinating five years ago you could probably have a bit of a laugh at a vegan just just a bit of fun mm-hmm. and now lots of people are vegans and probably at work your boss's daughter might be a vegan uh, and we've stopped taking the mickey out of vegans quite rightly but for cyclists because there's enough of 
people who aren't cyclists and you know they sometimes look a bit funny with what they're wearing we can still have a still have a laugh and and that seems harmless but actually studies have also shown that this kind of narrative that builds in the background cyclists don't do this or cyclists don't pay road tax or cycling is just a recreation so there's no way someone could seriously be wanting to to get to work on a bike and therefore we have the kind of phrases like hard-working motorist for example which doesn't make any sense because it implies that people who use buses aren't hard-working or people who ride bikes aren't hard-working all this kind of narrative builds builds up really so it's quite fascinating that that we still allow this and actually the best way to solve it i think is to build loads more cycle lanes and so basically when you do that and make you feel when people feel safe you'll just have normal people riding bikes doing normal things they won't be wearing armor or lycra or high vis to be seen they would just be going about their daily business wearing what they want to go and get some bread or milk from the shops uh, and then cycling will be normal and we'll stop generalizing people and in terms of that normalization of cycling as a day-to-day activity um Probably the biggest shift has been in the last six months when COVID kicked in and lockdown started. Suddenly, you couldn't get a bike for love nor money. Mm-hmm. Um, I think by Strava's data, they estimated the cycling numbers were up something like 160% year on year yeah. in terms of people doing it. Cafes and pubs have started to essentially colonise pavements and streets off their own bat. They're not waiting for you know licensing changes. Um, Obviously, one doesn't want to talk about, you know, a global pandemic as being um, having a silver lining. But has it presented an opportunity for people like yourselves rethinking the way that we live in urban spaces? And what do you think have been the most immediate effects of that? Yeah, I think it provided an opportunity for everybody to look at the way things were and decide whether or not that was healthy for us. Mm. Um, And we are creatures of habit. So we are quite quickly actually falling back into the status quo i don't know if you'll notice but you know where i am at least you know we've gone from clapping on thursdays to to having stuff in the windows to sort of just being a bit touchy with each other uh again um and i think that you know people do fall back into the the status quo during lockdown there was a yougov study which showed that just nine percent of people wanted to go back to the way things were so 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 basically that that to me shows that there is a desire for change and covid provided a a very rare try before you buy situation where people were able to go and do something that they've never been able to do before or felt safe to do before and decided actually i like it and actually i've stopped driving up the road to the massive superstore and i'm just going to pop up to my local corner shop and get get some stuff and support their local business because they've looked out for me um, and we started to learn more about our neighbors and about our communities and all that stuff's great, but it has to come from, you know, it took a global pandemic for that to happen. And it has to come from leadership. What we, I think, need to see is greater strategy from from national government to really support things like low traffic neighborhoods, which are uh, on a local level can be really polarizing. Uh, basically, they cut off roads to through traffic so you can't rat run through them uh, using ways or another app like that so residents get their road back roads back but some people feel that that pushes traffic onto main roads or it feels like it's an inconvenience it's a too high a price to pay uh, and we need to have some quite you know bold decisive action and remember that we are in a climate emergency and a respiratory pandemic and actually these kind of drastic measures are required and 
if it's not this, then what is it? And if it's not now, then when are you going to do it? Uh, and I don't think many people have good answers to those questions. When you talk about bold measures, um, can you expand on that a little? Like, what would that actually entail? Because, as I say, I think there is there's often a perception that it's just a case of putting down some bike lanes and then the job's done. Um, mm-hmm. If you had carte blanche, what, what would those bold measures look like? Yeah, so I think one of the boldest measures, and they, they shouldn't be bold realistically, but they're perceived as bold, is low traffic neighbourhoods. So those, just to kind of explain a little bit further, they are often uh, what are called modal filters or points closures. So if you take a long residential street, you might put some planters in the middle with a road close sign. That means that you can't drive all the way down that street. So guess what? Majority of people don't drive all down that street and the traffic that you were getting kind of goes um, overnight. Now, the issue is, is we have too many people driving cars in this country for short journeys. In Birmingham, there are 300,000 daily journeys, car journeys under one mile, um, which is just totally crazy. So when we close roads now, which is quite a bold thing to do and say, we don't want cars here, actually, we want people on bikes and we want pedestrians here, then the traffic in the short term the car drivers try and find another way and other roads that haven't experienced levels of traffic get maybe some more traffic. And actually the conversation has been, we shouldn't have these because you're just pushing the traffic elsewhere rather than if you hold your nerve, people will change their behavior because that's what's been proven to happen in a period of time in places like Waltham Forest. It might take a year or so, but people generally realize that being in the car for 20 minutes to a journey they can do by bike in five minutes is not a smart thing to do. So they fall out of that habit. And that's been a really kind of a, a bold statement of the kind of, you know, neighbourhoods we want going forwards. But unfortunately, it's been um, marred by this very divisive kind of narrative that has been in the media and elsewhere where, you know, grown adults are pouring oil on the roads to try and fi- try and make people on bikes, often children, fall over or destroying these planters by tipping them over or spray painting over signs so they're not legally enforceable all because they have to drive slightly longer to get to the other side of the street that's blocked off they just have to go around a few roads to get to the other side everywhere's still accessible it makes it harder to drive and we've got to have a genuine realization with ourselves and say if we want to get to where we need to be in terms of emissions and i'm not particularly green or you know, I'm, I, I like cycling and I support active travel, but I'm not an eco warrior. But I know that if you want to prevent the kind of climate change that we're heading for, people have to stop driving private cars as much as they do now. And this is a way to do it. And unfortunately, it's been quite, uh, quite divisive, as I say. And finally, you're involved in the Bike is Best scheme, which people are going to be seeing a lot more of. Um, can you tell us a bit about that and how people are going to be able to get involved? Yeah, so Bikers Best was a campaign that I created through my um, day job as CEO of Fusion Media. And ultimately, when COVID hit and the lockdown started, we saw that the way people were traveling was changing and that we, the industry, the cycling industry, had a part to play uh, in that and making sure that that was something that people felt they could do by providing with tips and advice and inspiration. So we clubbed together over 50 partners from the cycling industry who have basically funded um, what has been working informally almost as a cycling marketing board uh, effectively you might have seen some billboard adverts or we've had some tv adverts and some digital advertising running basically showing in a nutshell that cycling is for everybody 
uh, it's great for us all. It benefits society society widely if we all uh, ride our bikes and walk as much as we can. Now is the time to give it a go. Uh, it's been really well received, and we're hoping to carry on the work into the new year um, when we'll have new challenges and we'll need to continue to to explain the benefits of why we need a different way of uh, thinking for our towns and cities. So thank you enormously to Adam Transfer for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with the full panel show on Wednesdays. So subscribe on your favourite app and you won't miss them. And if you have time to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts, that would be a real help. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.